Once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody listening on our podcast channel. Uh, this evening, we're going to be studying the second half of Joshua chapter 4, and then we're going to jump into a little bit of Joshua chapter 5, just the first little bit. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 4, and we're going to start off at verse 10. Now, I want to give you a quick recap of some of the events that are lead up to our passage for today. Uh, what's going on is the, the Israelites have actually been on the banks of the Jordan River. They're waiting for God's command to cross the river and actually enter the promised land, right? This is a huge work up to this. And at a certain point, God gives that command. And the priests, along with the Ark of the Covenant, they actually step down into the river. And as they approach the river, as their feet actually touch the edge of the water, the Jordan River stops flowing upstream. It just stops, right? And they're able to cross on dry, on dry ground. And Joshua chapter 3 had told us that the river was actually at normal flood stage during this time of year. So it wasn't dry, it wasn't low, it was flood stage. So it was, it was really flowing uh, hard at that time. And the reason they add that part into the story is it's showing us that God really did a miracle. The river was full. It was very much not easily crossed, especially by such a large group, right? So again, the story goes, the, ple- the, the priest, along with the ark, they take it into the Jordan River, and the river stops flowing. And then the priests actually stand there in the middle of the Jordan River where the water's not flowing, uh, and they stay there until everyone else crosses. And this is where we're going to pick up our story. We're going to start reading at Joshua chapter 4, verse 10. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. Boy, that would have been a crazy thing to see, right? The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. Okay, so there, this verse actually seems pretty straightforward here, but the author, author is also making something very clear here, and that's why some of the verses are kind of in bold, some of the words. This part of the Israelites' lives is not simply about getting the promised land. That's huge and that's important. But it's also about following God's commands, doing what he needs them to do. And this is something that they had struggled with in the desert, right? That's why, actually, they were in the desert for so long. The nation of Israel stayed there in the desert because they had trouble following God. They disobeyed him. They didn't trust him. So he sent them back into the desert until that generation had passed away, and then their children are now grown up, and they're the ones entering the promised land. So it's due to their past that now we're going to see a lot of wording in the scriptures that indicate they need to follow God closely. Everything he says to the T. So in what we just read, we see where it says, the priests carried the ark, they remained standing in the middle of the Jordan, until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, right? Just as directed uh, by Joshua, just as Moses had directed Joshua. And then we see also the words, the men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. Now this is in reference to Moses commanding the Israelite tribes because there was a couple of them that had already see, received their, their uh their area of the promised land, and they were essentially on the left side of the Jordan River. 
And because they had already received theirs, Moses had said, listen, your fighting men need to cross over with everyone else to have them get their part in the, in the promised land. Right? So again, all of this, if we step back and we really look at it, this is really enforcing this idea that they need to trust God and do everything he says as they go forward. Right? The Jordan River, for example, was at flood stage. It was a flood stage. You ever seen a river overflow at flood stage? It's very intimidating, right? So it took a lot of trust for the Israelites to walk up to the banks, all, however, 100,000 of them, and go, yeah, we're going to cross that, right? But also, let's be honest, it took a lot for the priests to go in first and then stand there in the middle of the Jordan River while a couple hundred thousand people took their time walking across. And they just stood there. I mean, it would have taken most of the day quite a long time, right? And since, and since the priests were there, the people crossing would have looked to them for reassurance that this is going to be okay. If they're all standing there going, not many people would have tried it, right? But if the priests understood and they trusted God, they'd be like, is this? Okay, he's not nervous. Okay, okay, none of them are. Okay, we can do this, right? And so this was an important time. And this all goes back to the central tenet of this time period. What God is wanting from the Israelites is that they needed to trust him. They just needed to trust him. The only reason they were no longer slaves in Egypt was because God freed them with his mighty hand. The only reason the Red Sea parted so that they could safely escape the Egyptian army was because of God himself. He, he went before them. God is the one who fed them. He kept them hydrated. He safely led them through the desert for all those years. Now, in the culmination of all that, and if there's ever a time they need to really listen, it's now. They are crossing a river to go take the promised land. There's nowhere to go back to. All right, if you know anything about military tactics, you don't want a large body of water right behind you when you're trying to go forward. Right? It's, you get trapped. It's a very difficult place to be. Right? So now they're actually sending, setting foot in the promised land for the first time, and God's saying, I need you to listen to me. I need you to trust me. So let's continue with our story. Let's start at uh, verse uh, Joshua 4, 14 to 18. It says, That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage just as before. All right, very cool. Now we also need to say a few words about the Lord exalting Joshua. And then also a little bit about how the people stood in awe of him all the days of his life. Now, some translations, and maybe the one you're, you have too, um, instead of using the word, word exalt, they say make great. And instead of the people standing in awe of Joshua, some translations will say they feared him. Right? What we need to understand about this, what we really need to understand here is why this matters. Why this is in there. And what events led up to this that brought us to the stage, because history, context, or everything. This is not simply about creating great fame for Joshua, right? Or making sure people fear him, right? What they need to do is respect his role as leader. They need to trust him, and they need to submit to his authority. 
So two of the big events that contributed to this, that led up to this, and the need for this, are number one, Moses, when his face was glowing after he received the Ten Commandments, and also the incident with the golden calf, the one they kind of wish everyone would forget about, right? But that happened. So what happened with Moses and his face glowing and shining brightly was when he went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, he was up there for quite a long time, and he was in God's presence. Because God is so holy and Moses is not, he's like us, because he was in his presence for so long, his face started to reflect that holiness. He literally shined. He glowed, right? And when Moses came back down the mountain to his people, this holiness was still shining from his face. And you think people were thrilled to see that? No, it was terrifying. Let's read this. Read about this in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 30. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were what? They wouldn't go near him. They wouldn't touch him with a 100-foot pole. That's the kind of thing that scares people. I mean, this is, Aaron is Moses' brother. I have a brother. I can't imagine what would have to happen to him for me not to want to, you know what I mean? But seriously, to truly be scared. And that's what's happening. And this is important because, as we've seen many times, God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. And right then, God was giving his people his commandments to show them their sin and to help them begin the process to atone for their sin. Right? This is something to take seriously. It was real. The penalties for holding on to your sin, approaching God, and as we're going to hear, you, as you're going to hear, and we've heard before, approaching the ark and touching the ark if you're, is what? The penalty is death, right? You can't get more serious than that. So in the verse we just read, the people, all the people, even Moses' own brother, wouldn't go near him because his face was glowing. They had fear. They had respect. They stood back in awe. They needed to understand their sin, right? Because that's what separated them from God. If you don't do that, you'll never improve. That's why uh, they would always be sinful. They never achieve their purpose if they didn't become, if they didn't understand their sin. The other instance that we talked about that caused the people to have a healthy respect for God is the golden calf incident. In this case, when Moses came down the mountain, he saw the golden calf and the people were worshiping it. He was obviously very angry and so was God. And so one of the things Moses does is he calls forth uh, some of the Levites who are still devoted to God. And he had them strap on a sword. And they went through the community, the tribes, and they put to death about 3,000 people that day for their actions, right? And just before this happens, God says something to Moses that accurately describes the people and the condition of their hearts. And this plays into big with where we're going with this. All right, so let's look at that. It's Exodus 32, verse 9. God, and this is God talking. He says, I've seen these people, the Lord said. He's talking to Moses. And they are a stiff-necked people. All right? Now, what stiff-necked refers to is an animal, normally an oxen, who refuses to be led or guided by the, the owner, the farmer, right? Back then, have you ever seen the, the Amish? They have an animal that plows for them. You want to plow in the straight line. You need to be able to control them and decide where they go. But if you have an animal that refuses to be led any direction, they're going to do what they want, that animal is useless for that purpose. That's why they call them stiff-necked, right? So being stiff-necked is being the exact opposite of what God wants is someone who follows his commands. 
And this, this is the reason God exalted Joshua to make him great in the eyes of the people the same way he did with Moses because the people now need to follow Joshua just like they did with Moses. They would need to have respect. They need to stand back in awe and they would have to listen to everything he said. They needed to be very much not stiff-necked, right? Because they were heading into the promised land. They were going to have to really follow God because now, as we're going to see as we go farther in this book, they're going to be attacking towns, villages. They're going to have to hold on to those places that they've conquered. So this was about rightfully placing Joshua in Moses' place and, again, ensuring he had the respect of the people. Now, while all this is going on, the priests, as we're reading, are still standing in the middle of the Jordan River. And the river is being held back. And they don't move. Notice, they don't move. The people are done. They don't move until Joshua gives the command that it's okay to step out. And the story goes, as soon as they step on dry ground again, the river just starts flowing again like nothing ever happened. But now, we need to keep that part of the story in our minds because it's going to come up again in a few minutes. Because the Jordan River going dry for most of the day is not going to go unnoticed by other people that are not the Israelites, right? So we're going to get to that in a minute, right? So now the Israelites, they're all on the other side of the river, the, the river, the side they need to be on, where the promised land is, and this is where our story starts to pick up. Joshua four nineteen to 24. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you, until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so you might, that you might always fear the Lord your God. Okay, there's a lot of stuff in there. Let's take it bit by bit. As the Israelites step onto the promised land, they had taken 12 stones from the Jordan River. And each one of those stones represented one of the tribes of Israel. And they arranged those stones in a circle in a place that they named Gilgal. And they did this to signify, to make a large uh, visible landmark and to themselves, to the world, to the people around, that they were claiming this land. They were now here. Think of like modern times when an army marches into a new land and takes over. What, are they, what does someone always do what? Plant their flag. They did not have a flag, so they set up stones. And these were going to be visible. People could see them. And Joshua was like, tell your children. Tell your children's children. Let the world know this is why we're here. Right? They had stepped into the doorway to the promised land, and now they were there. Right? And the stones had a future purpose. Tell your children. Tell others. And this shows that what God was doing was not just for the Israelites. It's for the nations around them to see. It's for future generations. It's for us on the other side of the world 3,000 years later. He wanted them to know. This was, simply, this was not just about fame. This is about people knowing God and what he can do and that he has plans for the earth. Right? The purpose of all this was so that we would come to understand our sin. We would learn from his laws, but also that we would understand he has a plan for salvation for each one of us to bring the world to him. 
verse 24, he even directly tells the people. I love this. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So God wants us to know no matter what we go through, no matter where he calls us, no matter how much we can't see or understand the future, he is all-powerful and he is with us. Think about the Israelites as they entered this promised land. They had no idea exactly what they were left, right, forward. Do we stay for a while? Are we going? What do we do? I want you to stay. I'll tell you what's going to happen, right? He can do all things. He was powerful, and he wanted him, them to trust him. So this is him, this is God, having them put a visual reminder that they are there, right? There's purpose in this. We can have faith. And we have to remember Remember that faith is not needed when we have all the answers, when we understand everything. It doesn't take faith. We need faith when we don't know the future. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know exactly where God is going to call us next. We need faith when we're struggling. The beauty of having faith, especially in difficult times, is it draws us closer to God. We rely on him more. Faith drives us to consider God's plans and not our own. And it's important, especially in a time like this, just like verse 24 tells us, that we do need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, the way the word, we use the word fear, the Bible actually uses it as kind of closer to respect. It means that we understand that God has power and that we have no power next to him. God doesn't want us to be terrified of him, but he does want us to understand that we're sinful, that he is holy, and he has a plan for us. There's also a penalty for ignoring his laws, and most importantly, we need to understand we cannot save ourselves. We can't. So we need him in so many ways. Right? In relation to our story, the Israelites, again, now they're in the promised land. They're really there. This is happening. Now they really need to rely on God even more. For instance, imagine how successful they would be if now, now that they're in the promised land, they cross that border, let's just do whatever we want. Let's just do whatever we want. You think that's a good time to start doing that? No, right? It'd be no different than all of us deciding we want to go to the middle of the rain, uh, Amazon rainforest. We hire a local guide to get us really close. And then once we get there, we're like, hey, man, we're done with you. We're fine. We're going to do the rest on our own. Yeah, that's a horrible idea, right? It wouldn't be successful. God had brought them this far. And so with each step, he's going to remind them they need to stay close to him. They need to trust him. They need to follow his commands. And these stones were, again, going to be a reminder to them, their children, to everyone else that God has a plan, that they are there. Now, also, I want to show you something cool. This is actually a picture of one of the sites. There's actually, I think, two sites that they believe uh, are the ancient site of Gilgal. They're not really sure. And this site is actually right outside of Jericho. And when you look at this picture, can we look at it real quick? That's it right there. What does that look like? I've read a few commentaries that highlight the fact that this actually looks like a foot. And, it's, but, and, this is, this is, and this is why the commentators wrote that. What makes this special is that there's a, a couple of biblical references that God says the earth is his footstool. And that every place that God will, uh, the Israelites will set their foot, he will give them. And he's referring to the promised land. So we can't say for a fact that that's why it's in that shape. But it could be, and it's kind of cool, but it still is. Now, let's continue, and now we're going to head into uh, Joshua chapter 5, and let's read verse 1. 
Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. So really what we're seeing here, this is cool, is a culmination of the Israelites trusting in God, just trusting in him. And let me explain. To do everything that God was asking the Israelites was going to take a ton of faith. They were not a strong nation. They weren't a powerful nation. This was a nation that was forced into slavery, right? Strong nations do not let that happen to them, right? Strong nations have an army that can protect themselves. Small nations that can't protect themselves can't fight back. Things like that happen to them. So God frees them from slavery. And then we know that they head out into the desert, and they wander there for how long? Forty years. Four decades. That is not something a strong, wealthy nation does, is it? You wander the desert when you have no home, when you have no allies, right? No real wealth, no one on their side. And the reason I'm making this point, that we're going so far into this, is that as they're wandering the desert, they have no other options. To cross the Jordan... Right? Now, how they have the river in the back, and they're heading into a fertile land with lots of people, lots of cities, cities that are wealthy enough they can afford to build big walls. We'll get to the story in Jericho at some point, right? That's coming. These, these, these cities have armies. They can afford weapons and food stores. So for the Israelites to cross, it's not, it's not, it's not like they're taking a field trip. Hey, let's just go over across the river for a few days. What are they doing? They're going into this land with nowhere to go back to. There is nowhere to go. And these cities are big and they're fortified. And this is not a great, strong nation with nuclear weapons and, you know, armies. They're going to have to follow God and trust him. This is important. They're going to have to be faithful. So it's, we have to give them a ton of credit for doing this and staying faithful, right? And remember how early in the teaching I mentioned other people would notice the Jordan River not flowing for a day. Well, other nations actually notice that. And verse 1, which we read, tells us the kings in the area, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to stand up to the Israelites. So they knew they were coming. They saw them crossing. And they're like, oh, we got these guys. We got these guys. They have to carry their food with them wherever they go. They don't have extra food. They have no allies. We can handle this upstarts crossing the river. That is until the river stops flowing. They're not just going against the nation of Israel. They're going against Israel and their God, which is different. So it says their hearts melted. They had courage, and they totally could have probably beat the Israelites, but now they have no courage. Now they are scared of them. God was preparing the way for them in ways they never could have understood. They didn't know that was going to happen, and yet God was doing that for them. This is all happening because they trusted God. Now, there's a really, really good verse. This is one of my favorites in Romans 8. It highlights this perfectly. And as we read this verse, remember, I want you to really, really try to understand and try to achieve this mindset for yourself. As we encounter difficult times and when things happen and we can't see what's about to happen, this is how we should respond. Romans 8, 31. 
What then shall we, shall, we, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, this is not, and, this is, and I mentioned this before, when people read Bible verses, and I get this a lot because I love a good discussion. When people read Bible verses, I get a lot, of, oh, that just sounds nice. I just like that. It, and it reminds me when someone sees a nice painting, oh, that is just beautiful. I just like that. This is not what that is. This is a very real, direct, in-your-face question. You have to answer this. That's what this question is. You are being, you, you have to answer this tonight. Paul meant for this to be answered. If God is for us. See, that's a question of itself. If God is for us, what does that mean? And only you can answer that. Again, if you refuse to answer, you're like, I'm just going to like let everybody do their own thing. You've answered it. You've answered it. If God is real, if he is for us, if he's on our side, if he has a plan, if he's doing things that we have no idea what other stuff he's got going on, what does that mean? If he is for you, then who can be against you? See, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites have told totally answered that question. Have they not? Yes. They are marching into a foreign land they have never been, knowing there are cities with more people, bigger armies than they ever have. And they have no, remember, they're still being fed by manna. They can't feed themselves. This is an occupied land. They just put up a stone monument that everybody's totally going to see. I mean, they didn't stack up a couple cinder blocks and like, you, you know, you go 20 feet away and you're like, is it that behind that bush? This is big. This is for everybody. And they're saying God is for us. He's called us here. He is for us. That means something. So the purpose, this is a good thing, the purpose of all these stories being written down for us to read for future nations, us, is to say that God is real and he is for us. He can be trusted. That means something. And that's how we answer that question. No one can be against us because God is for us. Let's continue. Let's read Joshua 5, verses 2 to 6. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbeath, uh, how, I'm not saying that right, I'm sure, Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in, on the wilderness, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness, meaning in the desert, during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age, when they left Egypt, had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the reason Joshua baptized the men of uh, circumcised, excuse me, baptism was a lot easier at that point. So the reason Joshua circum I know, sorry. 
So the reason they were circumcised at this time is because the men of this age had not been circumcised. Their fathers had, right? Because they, they, and they hadn't because they were wandering the desert. All the children born during that time were not circumcised. But now, now that they're entering the promised land, actually taking possession of the land, that's what this is about, they were to be circumcised. Circumcision was first given to Abraham, and it was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. And so now, as they enter the promised land, again, promised to Abraham and his descendants, they continue this practice to, to solidify the covenant that they have with God. And after all that said and done, the men are healed. Verse 9 tells us, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called, called Gilgal to this day. Now what this is referring to, this repro- reproach, it actually means a couple things. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that was a degrading position. They were under the control of a foreign nation. They were not connected to God. They had also likely uh, taken on some of the Egyptian religious customs. And they incorporated them into their lives. An example of that would have been the golden calf incident. They didn't come up with that on their own, believe it or not. They learned that from other nations. And the, fi- the final aspect of their approach that was removed was their lack of faith while in the wilderness, in the desert. The reason the Israelites, who were freed from slavery, did not get to enter the promised land is because simply they did not trust God. They did not. So God sent them back into the desert, and there they died, and it's their children that are now adults, and they're the one that's allowed into the promised land. And it's this next generation, as we're seeing, that's what we're talking about tonight, they're responding in faith to God. They're trusting him when they don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow, the day after. They just trust him. Right? And so that's why they allowed themselves to be circumcised, because it's an outward statement showing we trust God. We trust him. We belong to God. They were singling themselves out also from other nations, right? And they're saying, we follow God alone and no one else. So while that story doesn't necessarily seem that dramatic to us, it's really, really significant. It meant everything to them and to God. This show of faith is what removed their reproach, as as the text says, which means that God's disappointment, his disapproval of them was removed. They were back in a right relationship with God. Now here, this is where things start to really get cool. Now that they're focused on God, reconnected, now in verse 10 it tells us that they celebrated something cool. Joshua 5.10, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated what? Passover. So at this moment, they take their relationship with God even higher, to a greater extent. They stop everything, and they celebrate God freeing them, right? And this is important because this moment, it highlights and it foreshadows to the world what all of this is about. This is about God saving lost people. It's about showing the world what God can do. Sure, this starts with Israel, but in the big picture, this is also setting the stage for what's going to come through Jesus Christ in the future. The celebration of Passover... It's about the people of Israel celebrating the angel of death passing over them, God protecting them, how they painted lamb's blood on on the doorposts, and it was a sign that they belonged to God. Then the angel of death passed by them, and of course, as we know from the story, went to the Egyptian households. So all this means something, and the Israelites, in the moment, take the time to remember, to reconnect, 
and to remember God and celebrate everything he's done for them. So this is a great moment, and it's very important. But one more thing is about to unfold, and it's going to impact them as well. It's in verses 11 to 12. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. And the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. So the reason God had provided manna for so long for the Israelites is because they were in the desert. The desert, you ever want to try to grow anything in the desert? Doesn't grow, right? Horrible place. There's not a lot of food. God had provided for them all this time, right up to this very moment, right? We knew he rescued them from slavery, provided everything they needed. But now, now that they're in the promised land, now that they've stepped foot, now that they've circumcised the men, they've celebrated the Passover, they set the stones up, they're saying, you are our God. God removes their reproach because now they're connected. And then now the manna stops. Here's what's really cool. There was our, the land was so productive. There was probably, what, a couple hundred thousand of them? There was enough food right there on those plains to feed that many people. I mean, this was a fertile land. Now the people could fully rely on the promised land, land of milk and honey. This was a very cool thing. Now, you could also make the argument that people were entering into a new level of trust with God. Since no more manna was going to fall, they had to trust God even more, no matter where he was going to lead them. He would take care of their food, their water. The land would take care of them, right? No matter what, he would be there. And this is what we can take from this, because this is a cool part. This is where it starts to come to us is that sometimes God stops, pro- stops providing in one way to then provide in another way we have never imagined. So while one thing stops, we can get nervous. Oh, what was that? God may be working on something over here, even greater. So again, God can sometimes stop providing in one area, and he'll start providing in another. Sometimes he's going to arrange things, like with, my, with uh, manna, where blessings are just going to fall in our lap. We don't have to do a thing. It's like cash a lottery ticket. It's just right there. But other times we may have to work somewhat to receive those blessings, to do our part, because he's building us up to trust in him. But even in those cases, will take, God will take care of us. He's teaching us above, above all things to trust in him. So just because sometimes things seem to change does not mean God doesn't care. He's not providing for us. He just simply may be doing it in another way. Now, before I finish, I also want to highlight, I want to highlight how much we actually have in common with the Israelites in this story that we've read. We know that God required, he required them to have faith and to trust him. We know he saved them from slavery. He led them to the promised land, right? And because of their faith, their reproach was removed. We know they celebrated Passover, and they did it as a way to remember God and everything he had done for them. Here's where we have the similarities. God has called each one of us to have faith in Jesus Christ, right? To have a close relationship with him. We know Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He removed our sin, and by doing that, he removed our reproach. He healed our relationship with God. Lastly, at the Last Supper, Jesus shared a Passover with the disciples. And during that meal, what did he tell the disciples? Do this to remember me. Do this often. 
Remember, reconnect, never forget what God has done. This is my body, this is my blood. And so we do that to remember Jesus Christ, just like the Israelites did with Passover. So it's so cool about all this, reading in Joshua, God leading the Israelites to the promised land. What we're actually reading is about the foundation of faith that God requires from his people. What he wants from us. Now, what he did for his people in the Old Testament has a direct correlation with what Jesus did in the New Testament. One builds on the other. If you want to actually, you know, we call Jesus Jesus, but in reality, he probably had the exact same name as Joshua. It was probably uh, Yehoshua or something close to that, Yeshua. All right, so now as we, begin, as we begin to wrap up this teaching for today, we need to focus this on each one of us and where we are at in our faith and trusting him. So this is what we want to do. If anybody here has not accepted Jesus into your heart, we want to start there because everything starts there. For each one of us, it does. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, we want to give you that opportunity. Nothing will change until you admit you're a sinner and you can have your sins removed through Jesus Christ. So what's going to happen is we're going to say a prayer, and in that prayer we want to give that opportunity. All you have to do is say the words that I say. But also in that prayer, we're going to pray for each one of us here because we need that. Each one of us needs courage. Each one of us needs to increase our faith. We need to trust in God no matter where he's going to call us. We need to trust him that if at one point it seems a blessing stops, he's simply opening a door for it somewhere else. We're also going to pray, as always, to be used by God to reach new people with the message of Jesus. All right? Let's pray together. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on a cross for my sins, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Tonight I ask, I ask for Jesus to come into my life. I ask him to become a part of me, to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, to wipe my sins away, and then to guide my steps for the rest of my life. And Father, tonight I pray that for each person here, you will increase our faith. We ask you to give us courage, strength, determination to endure all trials, to trust in you, to stand strong no matter what, just like the Israelites did as they entered the promised land. May everything we go through, good, bad, may it strengthen our resolve and may we always lean on you more and more. Father, we also pray that all people would come to know you and place their trust in you because it's only through you and the saving grace of your son that we have hope that we're even that we're saved. And Father, we pray that as our faith grows, as you use us, as our church grows, you'll continue to use us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for the church, but we also, most of all, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.